I will allow you to ask questions, but only periodically. So if thoughts cross your mind, because we're not just telling the story, we're also talking about the significance of the story. Oh, yes, I know what I was going to say. I know this is going to be heard by people who actually know how to pronounce all these names. <laughs> so I know that my Indian friends smile with amusement at my pronunciation, but I'm too old to change. So I'm just going to do the best I can. And oftentimes I'll write the names on the uh, board over here, um, not only so that those who know I'm mispronouncing them can know what I'm talking about, but also because it helps everyone to keep it all a little bit straighter because there's a lot of character. Okay. Um, the story of the Mahabharata is one of the great epics of India, and in, in this series we're going to do five weeks about the Mahabharata, and then we'll do four weeks about the Ramayana. And these two epics have been credited with carrying the culture of India intact through the entire cycle of Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga is the era we're just coming out of in which heavy materialism, first we had Kali Yuga descending down to 500 AD, then we had Kali Yuga ascending up to 1700 where it began to shift and 1900 where it really shifted into Dwapara Yuga, the age of energy we're in. But this story took place almost exactly where we are now, give or take a century or two, at the point at which Dwapara Yuga descending shifted into Kali Yuga. And so this was the end of a higher age going into a darker age. And as we go through the story of the Mahabharata especially, the Mahabharata took place right at that point. I was speaking of both epics. But both epics played this role in the Indian culture of saving the culture intact by taking very elevated concepts, which were perhaps a little too abstract for the average person to grasp during the darker days of Kali Yuga, and turn them into stories. And stories of heroes and villains and gods and demigods, as they say, and, and divine forces interacting inter, um, with human forces and the, the complex role of dharma and duty and honor in, in difficult situations. And as Yogananda himself said, he had a bittersweet relationship with these great epics because his mother would summon examples from these stories when she wanted to discipline in him and teach him certain things. And a great many of my friends who were raised in India, even people who become very westernized, still have this extremely living relationship with the characters and the events of these stories because it really has been the way in which the ideals were kept alive. Now, I'll just talk about the Mahabharata and then five weeks from now we'll talk about the Ramayana. As I started to say, the Mahabharata took place at the, at the same transition point essentially we're at now. I'm drawing an oval in my mind and this was Dwapara Yuga descending and this is Dwapara Yuga rising, but across the bridge, we're about in the same place, Krishna incarnated just at the time when Dwapar was ending and the world had to be brought down, brought into this lower age. Now bear in mind, the yugas are a planetary phenomenon and it is the background in which the true drama takes place, which is the drama of the soul's search for God and our eventual merging into the infinite. It makes no difference to the individual soul in terms of its own evolution, what the planet is doing. It just defines what the global conditions are because the phenomenon of the yugas, which I won't go into in depth here, is an astro astronomical phenomenon. It has to do with where 
our sun and our solar system is in relation to the center of the galaxy. And for more information, I refer you to the book called The Yugas, in which you can learn all about it. But the relevant point here, as we'll get into this story, is that this was a very chaotic time when the story of the Mahabharata took place. And Krishna, in the story, as you will see, did some things which people thought were very, very questionable at the time. But he was an avatar, and he had come to usher the world into this new age, and new rules were going to apply, because the, the, the higher age was fading, and a darker age was coming, and matter and the forces of materialism would have greater sway over human consciousness, and as an avatar, he had a right to make those decisions. In the same way, now, Paramahansa Yogananda is the avatar for Dwapara Yuga ascending. And he's had his incarnation very recently, and he's changing everything now as we go from this age of matter and form into this higher age of energy. So he's breaking a lot of the religious traditions and the denominational forms and the respect for the dogmas and so on that have been the, the sustaining force, really, through Kali Yuga. But now that's over and we're going into something new. Now, as most of you know, uh, Yogananda told his disciples, not all of them, but many of them, he said, that he himself, in another lifetime, was Arjuna, who is the hero of the Mahabharata. And that Babaji, the, who we have on our altar in that form as the ever-living master in the Himalayas, actually took visible form during that incarnation and was Krishna. And so Yogananda and Babaji are the, the two key, most important spiritual figures in this whole story, although the story involves many other characters, but they are the pivotal characters in the story. So that makes this particular epic, unlike the Ramayana, uh, particularly dear to our path. And it, it's sort of fun to see how the personalities, to a certain extent, play out. And, and Yogananda also, and others, he interpreted not the, the Mahabharata completely by any means, but the Bhagavad Gita, of course, which is the best-known scripture of India and the fundamental scripture of Yogananda's mission, the Bhagavad Gita representing the teachings of India, the New Testament primarily, and a little bit of the Old Testament, but the Bible representing the teachings of the West, Jesus and Krishna. Uh, Yogananda's mission was to show how those two teachings are united. Now, when the Mahabharata was written, excuse me, the Gita is one chapter in the Mahabharata. The whole Mahabharata is the story of a war, which we'll, of course, go into it in great depth as we go on, but it's a war between cousins. And just on the eve of battle, Arjuna, who is the key warrior on the side of the Pandavas, who are, for simple, in simple terms, the good guys in this story, the white hat fellows, um, Arjuna, his, his chariot is being driven by Krishna. And how we get to that point is the whole Mahabharata story. But on the eve of this great battle, Arjuna suddenly has doubts about what he's doing because the war is actually between cousins. And so he's having to go to war against what he considers to be his own family. And this, of course, is deeply symbolic, as we'll explain as we go through it. And he suddenly wonders whether it's worth it to go to war like this. So just as the battle is about to begin, Arjuna asks 
Krishna to please take him aside from the battlefield and let's talk. Now, that, that's an interesting story just in itself. And then the Gita is the conversation that follows. So the Gita itself was a conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, who were Yogananda and Babaji in a former life. So it's uniquely appropriate that Yogananda would then come and interpret the Bhagavad Gita, because after all, he was there when it happened. right? And uh, so, so that's why when he wrote his interpretation of the Gita, among other reasons, he said millions will find God through this, because he, he was channeling a continuation of that power. There's a very... Um, fascinating way in which the masters appear and reappear on this planet and how all of that weaves together. It's all just the enormous background for what we're doing here. Um, Let me just find where I was just a moment. But the whole story, as I was saying, the whole story of the Mahabharata only just leads up to the Gita, and that's just what I know what I was saying. So in the course of interpreting the Bhagavad Gita, Yogananda explained how what uh, the, the author of the, of the Mahabharata, and I'll go back to him in just a moment, wove fact and fiction together. And the way the Mahabharata came to be written, at least the tradition is, is that the sage, Beta Bhyasa, um, knew he was wise enough to know that, that Kali Yuga was coming, because great sages exist in all ages. Jesus, after all, was, was born in practically the depth of Kali Yuga, and he planted his teachings partly to help just keep something alive going in the West, going through the Kali Yuga times. And in fact, it was the Catholic monasteries, the Irish monasteries particularly, that saved, that saved civilization. <laughs> you always have to honor the McSweeney's whenever you have an opportunity. <laughs> the monasteries that saved the traditions of the teachings of Jesus through those very, very dark periods. That's the foundation of the book. How the Irish saved civilization. <laughs> okay. So Beta Biasa was there, and in higher ages, the truth is perceivable directly. And that's if you read uh, Purushottama's book about the Yugas, you learn about, you know, we think historically, thinking of, of history as just being linear from the dark ages to the present, the darkest times to the present, we think that the advent of the written word was progress. When you understand that we have descended from higher ages, you realize that the written word was unnecessary in the highest ages because people could perceive truth directly and communicate telepathically. But when the age began to decline, Beta Biasa perceived that Kali Yuga was coming, that people would no longer have the capacity either to perceive directly, to remember, or to comprehend the truth on a subtle level. So he was inspired to write both these epics and to write them in such a way that the average person could grasp them. And so he had the inspiration to write these stories, and then he needed someone. He was going to recite these stories, but he needed someone to write them down. And so they, they sent a call out into the universe, and Ganesha, they said, was the one who responded, and he became the one who would write it down. And Ganesha said, all right, I'll do it. But once I start writing, I just have to keep writing. And I'm not going to stop. So if you're going to tell me this story, you have to tell it to me without stopping. And that was a bit of a challenge for Biasa because he would have to every so often stop and think. And so he made a deal back with Ganesha that Ganesha could keep writing as long as he understood what he was writing. (laughs) 
And so every time Vyasa needed a little bit of a break, he would say something particularly obscure, and then Ganesha <laughs> would have to stop and think about it before he could go on and finish writing it. And so then they say that the story and all the different sages, first it was told to the devas, and then the message went out to this level of consciousness and to that group and to this group here and this, that group there, and finally mankind received the story. And this is probably, there's a lot of truth in this, whatever the symbology is, because it was really a gift from the divine to keep sincere hearts inspired and at times when it would not be so easy to keep them inspired. So, in all that context, I'll now sort of give you um, just a little bit of a summary. The Mahabharata always starts by explaining to you what the whole story is about, where we're starting, where we're going, how we're going to get there, and then we'll go slowly through it. The story starts, the first character in the story is someone called Santanu, and he, I'll just write his one name on here because he'll be part of it. Is that better? The story that we start with is Santanu, and he was a king, and there's a quality that you have to know about this whole story. Kings have certain responsibilities, and their responsibilities are to get more and more territory, more and more power, and sons. <laughs> and a whole lot of the story is about kings and their desire for power and their desire for sons. So we talk a lot, a, a lot about procreation, especially at the beginning. We talk about it delicately, but that's what we're talking about. Okay. Santanu was the father of another great hero of this story, who was Bhishma. And I'll tell you these stories, these characters in greater detail. Bhishma was the um, son of Santanu the king, and his mother was the goddess Ganga the river Ganga, and all, in, in a very miraculous way, it's explained how Bhishma comes to be born. Ganga later does not, does not stay with her husband. She leaves her husband, and after a time, Bhishma is returned, Devaratra, he's called at that point in the story. And Santanu, his father, after a time, is, oh, the other thing that happens is kings see beautiful maidens and desire them to be their queens. This happens also on a regular basis. So Santanu, after having been faithful to Ganga, waiting for six, some 16 years, and his son finally comes back to him, he's out in the forest, and he sees another beautiful woman, and her name is Satyavati. And he falls madly in love with her, and she becomes his queen. And they together have two sons, Chitragadha and Vichitravira. But unfortunately, both of these sons died without producing any more sons. So this becomes a serious problem. So, um, no, excuse me, I have that. Yes, yes, that, that's exactly what happens. And then by miraculous means, which we will explain, the lineage is carried on in the form of Dhritarashtra, who's a blind king, and Pandu, who's a very handsome and powerful prince who happens to have the strange quality of being very pale. And we will also talk about how that happens. And Pandu takes the throne, and he's a very powerful man. He's the younger of the sons, but his blind brother can't rules, so he becomes the ruler. And everything goes great, except then he accidentally gets cursed by a rishi. And this is another thing that happens in this story a lot, the curse of the rishi. And as, as we go through this story, we find that the curse of the rishi is actually a very convenient way to explain a lot of things that happen to us. When everything seems to be going just right, somehow or another, we seem to gather the curse of a rishi. This happens whenever the plot needs to be moved forward. Some rishi gets angry and somebody gets cursed, and then we all go through it again. 
But that's what it feels like a lot, even in our own lives. So Pandu gets cursed by Rishi, and then he goes, has to go off and live in the forest. And he still needs to have sons, and by a miraculous way, his two wives manage to give birth to five sons. And those five sons are the Pandava brothers, and they're symbolic and literal. Arjuna is one of the five Pandava brothers. He's the middle brother of the five. He stands as the fulcrum point. And these sons grow up in the forest till they're about 16 years old. And then, unfortunately, Pandu accidentally reactivates the curse of the Rishi, and he dies suddenly. And then the five sons who have now who've grown up in the forest and now have no father, there are two wives. The older wife remains alive. The younger wife dies with Pandu on the funeral pyre. So then she takes her five sons back to the kingdom. Now, meanwhile... Um, the Dhritarashtra, who's the blind king, has also given birth to his own sons, the chief of whom is Duryodhana. And Duryodhana is the king of the evil forces. Whereas the Pandavas represent the spiritual side, Duryodhana and all his brothers represent king material desire, is how Yogananda describes him. And Dhritarashtra and Duryodhana and his brothers make a show of welcoming the Pandavas back, but they are not really at all happy that they're there because Yudhishthira, the first of the Pandava brothers, is the oldest son. And therefore, the kingdom really belongs to him. So what ensues first is just youthful spirits, but in increasing intense hatred from Duryodhana toward the Pandava brothers. And even though the Pandavas, being of generous spirit, would be content to share the kingdom, the Kauravas, which is Duryodhana and his brothers, what they're called, it's all or nothing for them. And they finally trick the Pandavas into gambling with their evil uncle Sakuni, and the dice are loaded, and Yudhishthira, the oldest of the brothers, loses everything in this fixed game of dice. And then what happens is the Pandavas, they have to go off into the desert, off into the forest for 12 years, live in exile in the forest for 12 years, and then for the 13th year, they have to hide somewhere and not be discovered. And then after that, they will have expiated the debt. So the Pandavas carry this off successfully. And after 13 years, they come back and they ask for their share of the kingdom. But Duryodhana is not about to give it to him. Not at all. Now, the mother of the Pandavas is the, is the sister of the father of Krishna. And so all of these people are all related closely to Krishna, and Krishna is equally, yes, <laughs> Krishna is their cousin. And he's also the cousin of the Kauravas. And so Krishna is also interleafed throughout this whole story. And then Krishna comes into play here and tries to encourage the Kauravas, the material side, to share the kingdom. But it, inevitably, it comes to war. And so then the Kauravas and the Pandavas meet on the battle of Kurukshetra, and they go to war together. And Krishna, because he's related to both of them, gives them a choice whether they will... He, he says he won't fight, but you can have me or you can have my army. And the material side takes his army, and Arjuna takes Krishna. And so Krishna is driving the chariot, and all his soldiers are on the other side. They're on the battle of Kurukshetra, and they meet. And basically, almost everyone is annihilated. Mostly in these epics, you can tell that they're over because everyone is dead. 
They just go until pretty much everyone is dead. So if you're wondering where we are in the story, you can count how many are still alive, and then you'll know how far we are from the end of the story. Okay, so they go to battle. The Gita happens just on the eve of battle, and then all the different forces play against each other. Many of those battles are symbolic because many of these characters represent, are, are named for various qualities of our own consciousness because the, the field of Kurukshetra is really the field of our own consciousness. The Kauravas are our materialistic desires. The Pandavas are our spiritual aspirations. So on one hand, you have the story, external story that did really happen, and then you have how Vyasa has woven into it all of these psychological battles and symbolic characters and how they all interplay together um, to lead to the greatest victory because the purpose of this whole story was to keep these truths alive. And what's fun about the story, among other things, is how subtle some of the choices are. It's not cardboard characters with black and white choices. Bad people do good things and good people do bad things and medium people have hard choices. So you really end up... um, really learning quite a lot. Well, finally, the Pandavas do. I'm not going to spoil the story by telling you it, but the Pandavas do win at the end, but at a terrible price. And then they rule for 36 years, and then they grow tired of it, and they turn the, uh, the kingdom over to Arjuna's grandson, who is the only one of his generation who lived through that whole thing, the, only one, the main surviving relative and they all wander off into the forest, and they enter the astral world. And that's, they're almost all dead, so that's the end of the story. Okay. Now, we'll start at the very beginning. Are you content for me to begin? Okay. Santanu, the king. The characters in this section, just so you'll know, are Santanu, who's a king, Ganga, who's his beautiful wife, and the son who becomes Bhishma, at this stage, is called Devaratra. They often have more than one name. He doesn't become Bhishma until later. Very dramatically, he becomes Bhishma, but later. Okay. Santanu is a king, and he has all the power in the world, and the way kings are, they have their retinues, and they go off into the forest, and they just live this life that hardly any of us can imagine. And he's one day out hunting. Hunting is something that this king really loves to do. And Santanu is out hunting one day, and all of a sudden he sees a woman there who is more beautiful than any woman he has ever seen. And she is conscious of her beauty, but also has a nobility and a certain dignity. But as we find out, she was also drawn to meet this king. So when she sees him, she behaves in a demure manner, but when he looks at her directly, she meets his eyes. And in that moment, they know that they were meant to be together. So he says to her, I am the king of all this land. I have all the wealth in the world. Come and be my queen. And she's sort of a mysterious woman, but she looks at him, but she says to him, she strikes a bargain that all women should listen to very closely. She says, I will marry you. I will happily marry you but you must never question anything that I do. (laughs) And as long as you never question me, I will stay with you. Well, the king thinks. I mean, he's totally besotted with this beautiful woman. He says, how bad can this be? So he immediately agrees. 
And they go off and they're just blissfully happy together. She's a, a perfect queen and a perfect companion to him. And then, of course, the king's greatest desire is fulfilled and she becomes pregnant and then a child is born. And it's a son, just what the king wants. And as soon as the child is born, uh, Ganga picks up the baby and without saying a word and with a mysterious half-smile on her face, she walks out with the newborn baby and she goes to the edge of the river and she throws the baby into the water. And then she comes calmly back to the palace and then goes on with her life as if that was just a perfectly natural thing to do. The king is absolutely horror-stricken, but he remembers that he has promised never to question anything that she does. He says, well, that was one son, there'll be others. (laughs) So then a second son is born, and the exact same thing is repeated. And then a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh. Seven sons are born to this king with his beautiful queen, and all seven sons silently. She takes to the river, she throws in the river, and she comes back smiling. And so when the eighth son is born and she's heading out for the river, the king cannot stand it anymore. My dear, what are you doing? Oh, she says, I'm so sorry you said that. Now I must leave you. Leave me. He can hardly believe. What is she thinking? And then she explains to him, she says, you know, I am no ordinary woman. I am the goddess Ganga. I have descended here from the heavens. And let me tell you the story of how I came to be here. And then she tells the story of the eight Vasus, as they are called. They're eight heavenly devas. And those devas, this is where the gods and the demigods all get involved. Those devas were out with their wives having a wonderful picnic. Women cause a lot of trouble in this story, also in the Ramayana. But they're good, too, but you'll see. It's a very interesting story of all the interplays of human life. So the eight Vasus are having a picnic. And they're there, and they see the sage Vasishta. And Vasishta has this beautiful cow. And this cow is an astrally endowed cow. And anyone who drinks of the milk will get immortality. And this this cow is called Nandini. And one of the wives of one of the Vasus, one of the devas, conceives of a great desire to have that cow. And Vasishtha is away from his ashram, so the cow is there unguarded. And the the husband protests. He says, what need have we of this milk of immortality? We're already immortal. She says, well, I have a dear companion in the human world, and I would like to have this cow so I can give it to my companion so that she can have drink of the milk of immortality. And the Vasu says, Absolutely not. Vasishtha is a great rishi, and they all know about the potential anger of rishis. One of the things that rishis do from time to time is they spend all of their austerities, all their good karma in a flash of anger. Somehow or another, rishis have a temper. It seems to be the last thing that goes away. <laughs> but but he's not, he doesn't really want to mess with this cow at all, but finally she will give him no peace, so he agrees So they all decide, well, if one of us is going to do it, we'll all do it. So they grab the cow and they run away with it. Of course, Vasishtha comes back and they forget that he is omniscient, so of course he knows, and he sees that his cow is gone and he looks through the universe and he sees who took it and he 
he, by his power, he magnetizes and he sees them and he sends a bolt of energy to them and he curses them. Because of your folly in trying to take this milk of immortality, you're going to have to be born as a human being, all of you, all eight of you. You're have to, going to be born into the human world, which, you know, we think human birth is such hot stuff, but they know better, you know, to be limited by a human body, by mortality, by all this heavy materiality. They don't want to go there at all. But the Rishi has cursed them. They're going to have to be born. So they go to him and they beg with him, oh, we didn't really mean it. It was just a foolish moment. And the Rishi realizes that maybe he was a little hasty. So he says, okay, you don't have to be, you don't have to live a long life. Well, seven of you don't have to live a long life. Seven of you can just be born and just die immediately and that'll be okay. But the one who took the cow, he's going to have to live the whole term of a human life. So, okay, it's been mitigated, but the Rishi can't take it back. He's spoken. They have, to, they have to be born as human beings. So they go to Ganga, the goddess Ganga, and they say, would you please, please be our mother? Please be our mother. Now, Ganga has a little subplot going down here. <laughs> There's a king, another king called Mahabishkak. You don't have to know his name because he never appears again. And he was in the heavenly realms. And he had, had a slight desire for the goddess Ganga. You know, just like, wouldn't it be lovely to be able to sport with this woman in a way that we could both enjoy? So she goes to him and says, look, I'm going to have to go down to the world to give birth to these um, eight sages because I promised him I would. Why don't you come and be their father? So the two of them make an agreement. And you see, these are, see how interesting these stories are? Now, whether true or not, you sort of see how in the human world all these odd things play out. And whether this is, you know, literal or merely symbolic, you can see how you can begin to even imagine that what appears to be happening in this world is actually happening from a much higher level because of all different forces that are playing in. When you think of Bias's intention in telling this story, it gets everybody thinking about human life in a very different way. So Ganga agrees that she will come and be the mother of these babies, but she promises them, I'll give birth to you, the Rishi's word will be fulfilled, but as soon as you're born, I'll let you out of this body and I'll let you go back to where you really belong. And he agrees to come along with her because that will give him the pleasure of fulfilling his desire for her and being able to live with her. But when the eighth child is born, ah, this is the one who actually stole the cow. So he's going to have to live the full term of life. So it's at that point that her husband, Santanu now, is moved to speak. And of course, he's moved to speak because the forces of the Rishi's curse demand that this child not be thrown into the river. So Ganga says, I will take this child now with me back to the heavenly realms where I come from. Devaratra is what he's called now. And I will train him, and I will turn him into a perfect heir and son, but you won't see me anymore for a long time. And then she just goes away. And so this last one, um, who eventually becomes Bhishma, as we'll explain in a moment, then grows up in the heavenly realms, and he's trained by all the greatest sages and all the greatest warriors, and in every way prepared for the long and glorious life that he has to live. So 16 years pass. And King Santanu is still just mourning the loss of his perfect love. 
And he's out by the river one day, back at the spot where he met this beautiful woman where he often goes in order to relive the romance of their life together. But he notices that the river is not flowing. And so he starts following the river to understand what stopped the flow of the river. And he finds this extraordinary dam has been built out of arrows. And he sees there a beautiful young man who has been shooting his arrows in such a way as to create a, a, a stoppage in the flow of the river. And then he dissolves the dam and the river comes flowing over again and he's like, he's playing with the river. And then Santanu is completely entranced by the uh, beauty of this young man and feels very strongly drawn to him and then suddenly he realizes that his wife Ganga is standing next to him. And Ganga points to the young man and he says, your son, I have returned him to you. And then she explains that he, Bhargava taught him um, archery and um, they name all these different sages and saints who taught him all the things that he needs to know. And so she returns him to him perfectly trained and ready. Of course, Santanu is more interested in Ganga. Can't you come and live with me again? And she gives him words of advice that we do well to heed. She says, what is past is past. At the end of every day, the sun sets. Do you want to stand in the sunset and mourn the fact that the sun is going down? He says, life is a constant change. And life, certain things are with us for a while and then they go away. The wise man recognizes this and does not constantly rebel. So, and this is the bittersweet way in which um, Master's mother trained him. When Master himself as a young boy would lament, she would say, well, King Santanu wished that Ganga would stay. But you can't just mourn that the sun is going down. When the sun goes down, it does. Now, however, she leaves him with the sun. And all the king's longing for a perfect heir is fulfilled in this young man, and they become absolutely inseparable. They are the closest of friends, and the king trains him and acquaints him with everything that he needs to know in order to take over the kingdom and the king's enormous duty to provide an appropriate heir for his, all that he has done is fulfilled in this man. He has him crowned as Yuvraj, the heir apparent to the throne. It's just all set. And then one day, Santanu was out by himself with just his uh, charioteer, and he was hunting in the forest, and he um, was attracted by this beautiful fragrance. And he followed that fragrance and he found that it was emanating from a beautiful young woman who named, whose name was Satyavati, Satyavati. And it turned out that she had been uh, blessed by a rishi to be both beautiful and also to have this perfume emanate from her person. Now, the king was absolutely enamored of this woman, and now that his son was with him and it was clear that Ganga was never coming back, he wanted this woman to be his queen. And she happened to be uh, 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 the daughter of uh, the king of the fishermen. So Santanu goes to her father, and he says, you know, I'm going to make you a very good offer here for your daughter. She can be the queen of this whole realm if she marries me. Well, the, the king of the fishermen is a little bit um, cunning about this. And he says, she's very happy to 
um, give his daughter to be the queen. I mean, who would not be happy? But he says that there's, the only condition is that her son needs to be king after Santanu, that there's been a prophecy that her son will be king. And so all of a sudden, everything is wonderful, but in order for him to marry this woman, he has to disinherit his older son. And his loyalty to his older son is too great. So he's just heartsick at the, the thwarting of his desires, but he is too loyal to his son, and he just repudiates her. But then he falls into a deep depression because, after all, a king is born to fulfill his desires and he should be able to have anything that he wants, but he can't have this woman. But he wouldn't speak to his son about it, even though they had been so close at all times. And so his son is watching that his father is so depressed and his father won't say anything, won't won't give any explanation. So finally the son goes to his um, charioteer. And he asks him, um, who is the woman that my father wants? Because he knows his father well. And his father, the only thing his father has said to him is that he's worried because he has only one son. And one son, they say, is like having no sons because it's far too dangerous. And so because of that remark of his father, um, Devaratra knows that there is a woman. So he goes to the charioteer and he says, who is the woman? And he says, well, she's the woman, the daughter of the fisher king. So um, the son goes to this king. He says, how can you refuse my father? And he goes to the, the fisher king and he says, you know, my father wants your wife, your daughter to be his wife. What can the problem be here? And the fisher king says, well, but her son must inherit the throne. So Devaratra says, is that all? He said, well, then I renounce all claim to the throne. And here we have the first of this heroic gesture on the part of a son for the sake of his father's happiness. He sees that his father's happiness depends on this woman, and the only way the woman can come is for him to renounce his self-interest. He says, I renounce the throne. But the Fisher King is not satisfied. And he says, well, that's very good. He said, but when your sons are born, they will feel that the throne belongs to them, and then they will dispute for the throne, and they will fight with my daughter's son. And he's stunned by this man's selfish determination. But then he says, I will never marry. And he takes on that spot a lifelong vow of celibacy. And at that moment, the gods are so amazed by the sacrifice this young man is making, first of the kingdom, then of married life, and of all the power that would come to it, and the sons that all kings desire. He renounces it all out of love for his father. And the heavens rain down flowers, which is something else that happens periodically in the story. The heavens (laughs) raise down flowers, and the word Bhishma rings through, which means terrible because this is a terrible vow that he has taken. But also in this age, because they were still living in the, under the principles of Dwapara, once your word is spoken, you never retract it. So Bhishma has made this vow. So then the fisher king says, fine, here is my daughter. So Bhishma, as he is now called, takes the woman to his father, and at first... 
the father is thrilled because his son has accomplished what he was unable to do himself. But then he realizes, he, he finds out the price that his son has paid, that he's not going to be king and that he's not going to have sons. And so in gratitude for what his son has done, because there's no dissuading him, nor does the king really want to dissuade him now that his desire is being fulfilled, but the king is also a great soul. He's descended from the high realms. And so he uses up some of his tapa, tapasya, as they say it. When you do tapasya, when you do austerities, you build power. So Santanu had a lot of power, and he directed that power to give Bhishma the power himself, to give his son the power not to die until he chose his own moment to die. And that's how the story comes together at that point. Now... Bhishma in this story represents the ego. And Bhishma becomes the, um, one of the continuing characters, one of the great characters of the story. And when we get into the greater symbolism of the way this story goes, because Bhishma, as Master explains it, is the ego, and he has the power to choose when he's going to die. In other words, no one can kill the ego. The ego has to surrender itself. So Bhishma lives, the th- he's all through this story, the power of the self, the power of the ego, and it's, he's not all bad by any means, you can see. He has a great force, he can focus his will, he can do great things, he can make powerful promises, but he also will never be killed until he himself decides to surrender his life. And so symbolically, he's woven in through the story. So... Satyavati married Santanu, and in time, two sons were born to them, Chitra Gadha and Vichitra Vira. Okay? And then, as happens, Santanu grew old and died, and he leaves the story. And now we have his young wife, Satyavati, and she has these two young sons. And this begins Bhishma's great tapasya, because Bhishma has renounced the throne He's renounced the kingdom. And time after time, he nonetheless, it all comes back to him. Because now his father, the king, has died, but his half-brothers, the sons of this young wife, are not old enough to rule. So he ends up having to take over. And repeatedly, this falls to Bhishma. Often that which we renounce comes back to us. And this is what Bhishma does for us. So um, Chitra Gradha was made, he was declared the heir, but as I was saying, he was too young to rule. So in fact, Bhishma became the regent, and he started having to rule the kingdom. So the ego is still in charge, is also what we're saying here. No matter who's formally declared the king, the ego is in charge, as long as the ego wants to be in charge. But however, there was a Gandharva, and a Gandharva is a heavenly being with a great deal of power, who had the same name as this young man, and he challenged him to a duel as to who would have the right to the name, and unfortunately the young king was killed. So the younger son, Vichitravira, had to be crowned, and even still younger, Bhishma had to rule. And Bhishma was very good at running the kingdom, and he ran, ran the kingdom for a really long time. Let's take a short break. Okay. What, what, Arishi, what the word means? Arishi is a, a highly advanced yogi, who has a great deal of power. And so it's a word, we were just having a discussion over here, the word sage, the word saint. But a rishi is kind of, it's a, it's a, 
It's a concept that you think of in ancient India is that the rishis lived in, in ashrams. Often the rishis had wives and families. They were not necessarily monks or um, celibates, but they, they lived in their ashrams. And the rishis are considered to be very powerful and very wise. And uh, so it has a certain... Uh, has a certain energy in relation to... Yes. Oh, you have a question? And when we're talking about... Every time I mention Rishi, I'm talking about a wise and powerful human person. If... Uh, so all the characters have a, have a quality of consciousness to them. So Santanu, as the father of well, the, the ego... Santanu is considered to be the... I mean, Santanu has... He's considered... The explanation... The definition of him is the father of creation and... Satyavaki is considered to be primordial nature, but quite honestly, I can't go anywhere with any of those definitions, so I just didn't bother to mention them. And I don't find them, so I just don't, I don't know what to say. You would have to go on a deeper level than I can go. So I'm mentioning their qualities when I can say something useful about it. And that you, you might, so, uh, almost all the characters that I, that have, that, Master has given qualities to, I'll mention their qualities. But uh, Adam was asking me the same thing. You, I can't make relationships between everything. So I think it's easier not to torture your mind, to try to make all the pieces fit together. Um, if you can, I think that's great. And if you can tell me things I haven't said, I'm really interested in hearing them. But I pick and choose a little bit what I can comprehend and what seems useful to me. Okay. Because there's more direct ways. We're not in Kali Yuga anymore. We don't have to just understand it from the, the Mahabharata. We can just get it directly. <laughs> and I also know that storytellers embellish. And so certain things start out, you know, in a certain way. And then being a storyteller myself, you embellish. Hey, that went over pretty well. You know, you start working, working the crowd a little. So I think over all these centuries, a certain amount of overlay has been put into it. Not necessarily for bad motive, but just to get people involved in it. I, I will say something just about the way the stories work. There's a temple outside of Delhi. Uh, we always call it the Chadapur Temple because that's, the, that's the town where it is. But it has another name than that. And it's, it's, um, it was established by a man that people re- revered as a saint. And, uh, and it's really set up for the villagers. So it's set up a lot for the common people. You know, there's, there's different ashrams, and the Ananda ashram is educated English-speaking people. This temple is, is frequented a lot by people who come in from the countryside who are not educated, who don't speak English, um, some of whom are conceivably even illiterate. And there are all these re- pictures on the walls and, and carvings on the walls of all these stories, these stories and other stories, beautifully done, actually. I love the temple. I was sitting there one day in a room that was filled with um, pictures, carvings, and a group of people from the village came in, and it was amazing to me to watch them because as soon as they saw the picture of the story, I couldn't speak their language, but I could tell what they were saying. They were chattering about the characters and the events, and you could just see how perfectly it worked. I and mean, it really worked for them because it was very God-reminding for them, and it was reminding them of incidents that were instructive to them, and then they would see other characters, and they would enjoy that very much. It's not a world that we live in at all. Even visiting India, I didn't see it very often, but I saw it that one day and I thought, wow, Vyasa really knew what he was doing. And by the way, Valmiki wrote the Ramayana, not Vyasa. Every so often I make that mistake. So I made it again, so I have to fix it. Okay. 
Anything else about that? So, so now, Pachitra Vira is old enough now, and he needs to have a, have a wife. And the way it happens in um, these ways, sometimes certain kings have arrangements that, you know, my daughters will marry your sons, and your sons will marry my daughters, and they have an arrangement like that. Women at that time also were allowed to choose their own husbands through something called a swayamvara. And that was an event where the princesses would come and all the, the, the princes who wanted to compete for the hand of the woman would come together and then the, the princess would have a garland of flowers and she would place the garland of flowers over the man that she chose. Sometimes the, the men would have to, to meet certain tests or do certain feats of strength or heroism and that comes in later in the story, but sometimes the woman would just choose the one that was most attractive to her. Maybe they, she already knew the one she was going to choose. Um, so the, the town of Kashi, of Varanasi, the king had three daughters, Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika. <laughs> okay? And Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika, their father decided that they would have a, a swayamvara and that they would be able to choose their husbands. Now, this was actually a bit of an insult to Bhishma and to the, uh, the, the, that family. They lived in Hastinapura, that was their capital, because traditionally the daughters of that family belonged to his family. And so Bhishma needed uh, brides for the heir to the throne, and he thought that those daughters by right belonged to him. So he went out to that event, and he was going to go, and he was going to claim those three girls to be the brides for his half-brother, and then that would secure their lineage. So he comes to that, and then all the young men start mocking him. I thought you took a vow. I thought you were going to be celibate. What are you doing here, old man? And they start making fun of him. But Bhishma was determined that Vichitravira would have these brides. And so he took the hand of each of those girls and he put them in his chariot and he started just galloping away with them. Now he was a very powerful man because of course he was the daughter of Ganga and he'd been trained by all the finest warriors in the heavens to be as powerful as he was. He also was the son of a very powerful king and so he was able to manage that. But then the, uh, the king of Kashi got very upset and all the young men started battling, and there was a great fight, and there was especially a fight from king, the king of Salva, who was determined that, that he would not get away with these women. But Bhishma fought him, and even though he was a great hero, Salva was bested, and Salva was thrown to the ground, thrown out of his chariot, and Bhishma had absolute power over him, and then he just let him go, which was, of course, a great insult. So Salva had to slunk away, slink away, and Bhishma drove off, and the three daughters belong now to his kingdom. That was just what had happened and what was supposed to happen in the first place. So Vichitraviru was delighted. These three beautiful women are all coming to be his bride, and everything was um, going just fine, except when they got there, you know, Ambika and Ambalika were not really upset. They'd been, after all, you know, he'd come and gotten them, and now they were going to be the bride of a great king. It wasn't a problem. But Amba confessed to Bhishma that just at the moment when he took her away, she was just about to garland the king of Salva. 
which is why he was so determined, you know, to get her back because she had already chosen him. So Bhishma says, why didn't you tell me? Because if you've already given your heart to another, I didn't mean to take you away from that. She said, well, I was just too frightened to, take, to, to tell you. Well, Vichitra Vera was an honorable man. He said, I don't want to take you as my wife if you've already given your heart to another. So Amba's delighted, and she's in great state. She goes back to the king of Salva and says, you know, our lives together are saved. But the king of Salva now has been defeated by Bhishma. And he said, Bhishma took your hand. You belong to him. I'm not going to take now his used goods. And he just refuses to take her like this. So now Amba has to go back to Bhishma. And she says to Bhishma, you know, your half-brother won't marry me. And now you took my hand. You have to marry me. And he says, I can't marry you. I've taken a vow. And I'm not going to break it. So he felt very sorry for her, and he felt very awkward about the mistake he'd made and very annoyed with her for not speaking up. But nonetheless, they were captured. So for some years, Vichitra Avira took the other two sisters as his brides, but she was just caught. She was a young woman. Now she'll, she'll, she'll never have a husband. She's been spoiled, and the one she wants won't have her back. So she becomes more and more bitter. And finally, she... Um, uh, gets the aid of her grandfather, who happens to be a great rishi. And her grandfather is very sympathetic to her. And he says, this is really wrong of Bhishma. Bhishma, in honor, must honor his commitment to you. It's not right to ruin the life of a young woman. These are all the rules of society, you see, that are being played out here. So he goes and he speaks to Bhishma's guru, which is Bhargava is his name, and he's a famous, powerful warrior, and the guru summons Bhishma, and he says, you know, you must marry this woman. And he says, not even for you, sir, can I break my vow. And so all through this story, one way or another, they're always trying to get Bhishma to break his vow, but he's made his vow, and it's terrible in the sense that it's awesome. It's an awesome vow he's made. And he says, absolutely not. Well, then... He says, well, I promised my friend that I would defend Amba's honor, so you're going to have to fight with me. I'm going to, to force you to do this. And so they get, start this great battle. And Bhishma says, I love you as my guru, but I love my honor more. So they begin to battle with each other, and Bhishma has become so strong, not only because he was trained, but also because of the power of his vow, and that he, the two of them, are fighting and fighting and fighting and None can win. And finally, Bhishma has this, what they call an astra, a mantra that he's going to use, and he's going to hurl it to defeat his guru, and it's going to destroy the whole world. Every so often, the whole world is threatened by one of these people. <laughs> and Bhargava says, wait, wait. He says, I acknowledge my defeat. I honor you as a great man. He said, I'm honored to have been defeated by such a great man, my own pupil. And then he goes back to the grandfather and says, nothing can be done. Nothing can be done. So Amba now is just enraged. Six years have passed, and her life is just destroyed. And she goes um, from king to king, and nobody will help her. And so finally, she just goes off into the woods, and she does great austerities. Here's another theme. Whenever 
you really want something that this world is not going to give you, you do great penance and you get a boon from the Lord in some form or another, and then that boon gives you power. These are all the lessons that are here. So she goes and she does all these austerities and she prays to Lord Shiva and the son of Lord Shiva comes to her and he gives her a garland, an ever-living garland of flowers. He hands it to her and she says, whoever wears this will have the power to be the enemy of Bhishma and to defeat him. So now she takes this garland and she goes to every Kshatriya warrior. I am an innocent woman who has been destroyed by this man. Somebody must defend my honor. But everybody's way too afraid. Nobody's about to take on Bhishma. They know he defeated his own guru. I'm not a fool, they all think. Even though they're honor bound, no one will do it. So no one will take the garland. And finally, she goes to the kingdom of where King Drupada is and she hangs the garland on a pillar in his courtyard. And Everybody's afraid to touch it, but she just goes off. And then she does more and more tapasya, and she prays more and more to Lord Shiva until finally he appears to her and he says, you know, you've pleased me very much by all your austerities. Here's the peculiarity of the story. You know, even though her intention was a little bit mean, she just worked so hard and, and concentrated so deeply, Lord Shiva says, I'll give you the boon. She said, the boon I want is to kill Bhishma. And Shiva said, well, all right, you know, in your next lifetime, you'll be the one who kills Bhishma, because she's a woman, she can't, she can't uh, kill him, she can't go to war with him now. She says, well, that's not enough for me. She said, when I have my revenge, I want to remember. So he gives her the boon that she's going to be able to remember. So then she just said, this is wonderful, I'm just going to get on to my next lifetime. So she builds a fire and she just throws herself into it. <laughs> You know, these are pretty one-pointed, these people. And then she's reborn as a daughter in the house of Drupada, where the very place where she's hung this um, uh, garland, which nobody touches, and it, it stays ever-living, just as Lord Shiva promised it would. And one day, as a little girl, she just takes it and puts it on. You know? And everybody was so horrified, she just smiles and says, this is the reason that I was born. And so then she leaves home. And she goes out and she does more austerities, and by the power of a yaksha, she's changed from a woman into a man. And she becomes Sikandin. And later on in the story, when she confronts Bhishma, Bhishma, Bhishma still considers her a woman. It's dishonorable for a warrior to fight against a woman. So when the time comes, she's the instrument of his death because he puts down his weapons. He won't fight her. And she gets the satisfaction of taking him down. Okay. <laughs> so now we'll do one more round and then we'll let's see what happens here. So Ambika and Ambalika are happily married to Vichitravira for a time. But then Vichitravira was struck with consumption, they say, and he died. And guess what? He died without leaving any sons behind. So here we are again. Satyavati, who is just determined that she's going to rule this kingdom, her first son has been killed by a Gandharva, now her second son has died, and now we have these two brides here, but we have not, no lineage. So Satyavati goes to Bhishma, and she says to Bhishma, 
You know, if the wives of your brother die without children, the scriptures say, there's a fine tradition that says, you can marry those wives for the sake of carrying on the family so that your brother will have an heir. And Bhishma says, and this is, here comes the teaching again, an obedient son will always obey his mother, but mother, this request I cannot fulfill. So then Satyavati rails at him for a while, Satyavati, and tries to tell him all the ways in which this is definite, but he's, he says, you know, because of you I took this vow in the first place, and now you are asking me to break it. And he says, I'm just not about to break it. But then he tells his mother, he says, there is a solution to this problem, that it says in the scriptures that in cases of extreme need and the need to maintain the lineage in an important kingdom is extreme need, a rishi can father a child. You know, and the rishi is not doing it for any lustful reason. He's doing it for t- completely out of duty. Well, then Satyavati is extremely interested in that thought because at the same time that she was granted this great beauty and this wonderful perfume that emanated from her body, the same sage, the same rishi that gave her that power also fathered a son with her. And that son was Beta Vyasa. Satyavati is Beta Vyasa's mother. So he writes himself right into the story. So he, Satyavati calls to her son and the son hears his mother calling and he comes. And he explains, Satyavati explains that, you know, Ambika and Ambalika here are widowed. There is no one to take over the kingdom. My other son, Bhishma, my stepson, is not going to fulfill his duty. You need to. And the Rishi says, as an obedient son, I will do what my mother asks. Great reverence for the one who gives you life. You know, in our culture, we don't have that same reverence, but in the Indian culture, it's, it's not an easy thing for a child to disobey its parent. It's a very difficult for a son to disobey its, his mother. So the Rishi says, I will honor your request. So Ambika is told, you know, what's about to happen, that she's going to have to have a child with Vyasa. And Vyasa is not an attractive man from the point of view of a young woman. He's an ascetic with matted hair, and he's been living out in the forest, and it's not her ideal. So, but she agrees, but she's very, very frightened. So it's arranged that he will come to her bedchamber, but she's so frightened that she keeps her eyes closed through the whole experience like this. This is how the story is told. (laughs) So Vyasa says to his mother the next day, yes, the son will be born to you, But because she refused to open her eyes, the son will be blind. (laughs) So Satyavati is just furious at her daughter-in-law, but there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. So so Vyasa agrees, well, he will also make a son with Ambalika. So Ambalika was also equally horrified at the prospect, and so she turns extremely pale. And so her son is born, and that's Pandu. And Pandu is not blind, but he's white which, of course, in a land where everyone is dark, is very strange. Okay. So Satyavati said, you know, we need one more son to ensure the lineage. So Vyasa agrees to return after the son is born, and he will go back to Ambika, and there will be one more son. But when he comes back, Ambika just can't face it again. So she sends her serving maid. She puts her maid in her bedchamber, and when Vyasa comes, the maid is there. But the maid is not... She recognizes this is a great honor to, to have the son of Veda Vyasa. What is there to be so 
delicate about, and she serves him graciously and honors him and is honored to bear his son. And so the next morning, um, Vyasa says, well, you should know that the best of my children will now be born. And Satyavati is beside herself with joy. He said, except he will not be your heir. (laughs) (laughs) And his name is going to be Vidura, which means the wise one. And so Vidura is born into the family, into the kingdom, but he's not really the heir to the throne. So Vidura then becomes a character and an advisor in the play, but he can never be the king. And then Satyavati tries to persuade him, and he says, desperate measures can be carried out three times, but not more. (laughs) And then he says, I have turned my eyes away. He says, I've turned my eyes away from the world. He said, to be with a woman three times is is all that I can do. And then he goes off again into his life. And so Bhishma finds himself again with three young children and no one to run the kingdom but himself. Okay. So now where we are. Now Dhritarashtra in this represents the blind mind. Okay. And and Pandu represents, let me see what he's, he's the pure discriminating intelligence. And Vidura is um, wisdom itself. So these people become relevant because the blind mind is Dhritarashtra because he becomes completely smitten and under the control of his son who is the king of material desire. And his mind is blinded by all those desires and he can never um, see clearly. And Pandu has uh, discrimination, but not sufficient. He has pure discriminating intelligence, but it doesn't serve him enough. Okay, let's go on from here. So, now we come to a character in the play called Kunti. And Kunti is the, turns out to be the mother of the five Pandavas. She gives birth to three of them, but ends up mothering all, all, all of them. So, let's see. So this is a little bit of a a story of what happens first to Kunti. Kunti was um, the sister of Vasudeva. Vasudeva becomes the father of Krishna later. Kunti becomes the mother of Arjuna. Uh, Her brother becomes the father of Krishna. So in this way, the two become close cousins. And Kunti's father was a wise king, and his brother did not have any children. And because Kunti's father had two children, he loved his daughter, but he gave his daughter to his brother to raise so his his brother would not grow up childless. And she was well-raised, she was beautiful, she was well-mannered, she was a, a, a wonderful child. And this sage came to visit in the kingdom, sage Durvasa. Every time a sage comes to visit a king, sometimes it's a little bit dicey because the king has to entertain him exactly right, because sometimes the rishis, the sages, become a little angry. So um, Durvasa Kunti was the one who was going to take care of him, and because she was such an elegant and refined child, she she served him for a year while he was the guest in the kingdom. And he was so um, pleased by her and her wonderful service to him that he granted her a boon. And the boon he granted her was that he taught her a certain incantation. And whenever she um, concentrated on any god in the heavens and did this incantation, 
then that god would come to her. And Kunti was very grateful and practiced what he taught until she understood it completely, and then the sage went on his way. Now, Kunti at this point was just a young girl, and she didn't really quite understand what the sage implied with the power of this incantation to say she could summon any of the devas and he would come to her. So she thought this was wonderful, so she saw the sun in the sky and she thought of the god Surya, and she did what the sage, the sage had taught her. She practiced this incantation, and then all of a sudden, shimmering light took form, and the god Surya was right in front of her, and she bowed down in reference, and she was thrilled by, by the experience that she was having. But Surya understood what the power of this incantation actually was, was that he would come to her, and he would give her a child. He would give her a child in a divine way, but nonetheless, once the incantation had started, it had to fulfill itself. And when she understood, when he explained to her that now she was going to have to bear his son, she, of course, was horrified. She said, I'm just a maiden. I'm an unmarried girl. How can I possibly do this? My reputation will be ruined. My father will be very disappointed in me. But Surya assured her that once the child was born, she would return to being a virgin and nothing, there would be no difficulty. And the child would be born right away because these are magical. Yes, it's quite an incantation, right. So she was reassured, and a child was manifested immediately, a beautiful baby. And that beautiful was, was, baby was born with golden earrings and with a breastplate, just right as part of his body, because he was the sun. He was radiant like the sun. But she was just a young girl, and she couldn't keep this child? What could she do? So she wrapped the child beautifully in a silken garment and she put him in a basket and then she snuck down to the river and she looked at him and she, she told him that she loved him but couldn't keep him and that she wouldn't have the honor of raising him but she would always recognize him because of his earrings and his breastplate. And then she blessed him and then she sent him off down the river. And believe me, he will come back. <laughs> and she never told anyone, which becomes a very important part of the story later. And then later, when the time came, there was a swamvara for her, and Pandu, the king, the prince from Hastinapura, came, and she was completely enamored with him, and she garlanded him. And then another, uh, and at this, uh, another young woman named Madri also garlanded. Pandu and the two of them went off to be his wives. And then Dhritarashtra married a very virtuous woman named Gandhari. And Gandhari, at first, um, her parents were reluctant to marry her to Dhritarashtra, but she thought, she felt that this was her destiny. But she felt it was dishonorable for her husband to be blind and her to be able to see. So on the day that she was married, she took a scarf and she bound her own eyes. And then she lived the rest of the, her life with the scarf over her eyes so that she, she would be living not greater than her husband, but in the same reality that he was living in. And because of this, she became very, very virtuous and very powerful. So now, that's the end for tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs>